So this is week two of our series on where did our scriptures come from. Last week, I kind of introduced it. We read all of your questions that you put up. We told you what we were going to cover. We also talked about what we're not going to cover. But I invite more questions. I already got a few more. If you have more questions, just grab a card. You could throw it into the red box. You could just give it to me afterwards. Uh, you can ask them here, of course. But if you want to write them down, you can do that. What we're going to be doing in this series is I'm going to be throwing out information to answer some of the questions. And then we're going to take a break, maybe a couple of weeks, and actually go through the questions and show you what we've answered, then go back into more material, because there's a lot here. Last week, I threw up the justifications of why even do this. And if you remember, I said, look, a lot of what we know about the Bible, we've just heard in a sermon. It's hearsay. We haven't actually spent time to investigate it ourselves. We've never really sat down and thought, what is this book in my hand? Where did it come from? Do I know enough about it? When someone challenges the authority of this book, do I know anything to be able to rebut it other than parrot back something I've heard in a sermon? That's kind of why we're doing this. We said that there's some doubt in a lot of our minds, but we don't really know, and we haven't done the work, honestly, to investigate it. So your questions were a chance for you to give us some of that feedback of what you wanted to know about. Next week, I'll have a list of books for you to actually look at if you want to follow along with some of them. So this is our series outline. We're focusing a little bit on the transmission of the text, so it's good that Morgan announced that the Dead Sea Scrolls exhibition is going on here at APU because if they're going to talk about transmission, some of this will be good background so we can all go see those fragments together. And I'm going to be talking tonight a little bit about that. And then you see we're going to get into eventually inspiration, maybe the canon itself, inerrancy and infallibility, the translation of Scripture, maybe different versions. Tonight, we're focusing just on this one thing, just the Old Testament. That's kind of where we're focusing tonight. I want to throw out a couple terms to define them for you because I don't want to assume that everybody knows these terms. We might use them. So let's start with the one that was asked about last week, just the word canon. We're trying to understand the canon. And so the first word, canon, it comes from a Greek word that's very close to it, canon, and it's saying basically it's a standard of measurement. So the canon for us has become the list of those books that we accept And then we define it with the word canonical, like those are the canonical books. So somebody had to make a measure, and one of the questions you've asked is, well, who got to make that decision? And what was the basis of it? We're going to be getting to that in a couple of weeks. But when we're talking about the canon, we're talking about those books that are officially in, and they did use some measure to do it, so we're going to talk about that, and the ones that we believe are authoritative and inspired by the Holy Spirit. All right? You have questions about how we determine that. Second thing, you might think this is an obvious one, but I want to define what a scroll is because a lot of the Old Testament manuscripts were handed down for a long time in scroll format, all right? So you've probably seen a scroll. Here's a blow-up of a scroll, okay? You see how the pages are put together? That's actually a real scroll the way they were made. They would glue pages together, and they would write onto the scrolls. The reason this is important is because a lot of people spend time talking about, I don't understand, there seems to be different orders of the books, And one of the reasons for that is because they kept them in scrolls. They weren't in a book. They just put them together, a scroll. So the order wasn't so important. Maybe the division was. I'll be talking about some of the divisions tonight. So just so we have the terminology in mind, that's a scroll. Then there's another word called codex, which is kind of a New Testament development. The early Christians were among the first to use the codex, which is much closer to a bound book. All right? So this is actually a codex. This is 
one of the ancient codexes here that we're going to be talking about next week when we talk about the New Testament transmission. But just so you can see, it looks very similar to books. This is the way they were kind of put together. They actually had a spine. They were bound together. And if you notice on this, just one thing to notice as we're even examining some of the scriptures, we're going to be talking tonight about how things were copied. If I could zoom in on this for a second, you see how there's no spaces? And that was one of the things is some of the languages, in this case, in the Greek, it was they wrote without spaces. And sometimes in the Hebrew, they wrote without vowels. So part of the work of copying and part of the work of translation and part of the work of making sure the transmission is accurate is focusing on things like making sure you parse the words correctly from one another and making sure you understand where one begins and one ends. So that's part of the issue that you see. The Septuagint, just if you've heard this word before, that's a Greek translation of the Old Testament. We'll be talking about that tonight, but you're going to hear that word, so you should at least be familiar with it. Some of you asked about the Apocrypha on your cards. What is that exactly? Well, first of all, it's a a Greek word that means hidden things. There's two reasons that word hidden things kind of means something. First, the Apocrypha are non-canonical books, at least that's the view of a majority of people that they're not canonical, but we're going to be talking about, again, who got to determine some of that. But the reason they called them Apocrypha is because there were some people who felt these books should be hidden from the people because they might confuse them. But there was also this feeling around the time the Apocrypha was written, and most of these are Old Testament books that didn't make it into the Old Testament canon. So they're kind of written around, let's say, the 3rd or 2nd century before the Common Era. There was some belief that they contained mystical writings as well. There was some sort of mystical understanding of these books. So again, that's where this term apocrypha kind of comes from. Just a basic definition so we can work with it. And finally, the Pentateuch, which is the Greek word for five books. And of course, you might know it as the Hebrew word Torah, the first five books of the Bible, Torah meaning teachings, instruction, or the law. So we're talking about Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Okay, those are some terms to get us all on the same page. So, here's the question we're trying to answer tonight. How did we get the Old Testament? If I were to ask you, you might have heard that we just grabbed it and imported it, right? That's kind of the basic understanding that a lot of people have. And that's not too far from the way that the church adopted the Old Testament. Now, notice I said the way the church adopted the Old Testament. Of course, there was probably a lot going on behind how the rabbis determined what comprised what they referred to as the law and the prophets and the writings, the Hebrew scriptures. But for the church, it was not so difficult. And here's why. There are two basic points. By the time that the church begins... And even by the time that Jesus is doing his ministry, the belief is that the parameters of the Old Testament are pretty much already known. We already know what's in the canon of the Old Testament, to say it accurately. That's the idea of why it's so easy to adopt the Old Testament. And second, Jesus and the apostles viewed the Old Testament as authoritative. So the test for the church's view on canonicity is easy. What was the Old Testament canon? Was it known to Jesus? Was it pretty much solidified by that time? Did he agree with it? If he did, good, that's good enough for us. End of story, we don't need to debate should this book be in or should this book not be in. 
Yeah. Well, how do we know what they viewed as the scriptures or as the Old Testament? That's the question. So the question is, you've hit it, is, well, how do we know that they knew what was in it? Like Jesus in the Gospels is not recorded as saying, I believe that the Hebrew scriptures are comprised of, and then he starts listing a list. He doesn't say that, right? So that's true. We don't have that kind of listing. But the church believed that if they were fairly solidified by the time that Jesus refers to them in a sweeping way. Like, for example, if Jesus had said, I believe that the Old Testament is authoritative. Let's just say he said that word. And then we look back and say, was the Old Testament pretty much known by then and solidified? Yes, it was. So therefore, Jesus is just, in one sweeping statement, adopting the entire Old Testament. Well, Jesus does come very close to that. In fact, we saw last week when Jesus said that nothing in the law and the prophets is going to be wiped away. We'll be looking at that verse a little bit. In fact, he goes further in some places and says, the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. All right, now the Hebrew scriptures have three divisions, the law, the prophets, and what they call the writings. Psalms is one of the main books of the writings. So in a couple of places in the Gospels, we have them recorded saying the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. And to the early church, that was good enough. He's giving an authoritative statement that he accepts the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. Yeah. Well, so do we know when the concept of the writings, including the other books, was implemented? Yeah, let's go forward a little bit and see what external sources we might have and kind of get an idea of, is it plausible that this two-step analysis conducted by the church, does it have support? So let me show you some supports, and then you tell me, push back and tell me if you buy some of them. Let's talk about were the parameters of the Old Testament or the Hebrew Scriptures fairly solidified by this point or not. Number one we already have some notion in external writings of what the books of the Old Testament are. The rabbis are already writing commentaries, which we won't get into all the different names for those commentaries, but they're already writing commentaries about the books, and there seems to be a lot of discussion about the main books that we have adopted as canonical in the Old Testament. They've looked at them in this way. These are the 24 books, again, arranged in these three divisions. And these, again, come from external writings that predate the first century. Some of them coming in the third and second century before Christ begins his ministry that are already kind of solidifying the law, the prophets, and the writings. Again, the law being the Torah, the prophets being the Nevi'im, and the writings in Hebrew being the Ketuvim. So, we have the statement of Jesus appealing to the law and the prophets repeatedly and in a couple places, the law, the prophets, and the Psalms, so you can see how they work together. Here's some external things. I hesitate to bring this one up because Josephus has been so overused in apologetics in the Christian church, but in writing his history about Judaism, Josephus confirms, and the way he's writing, the divisions of the Hebrew canon and also the specific books that are already accepted as canonical in those books by that point. So there's one more person writing outside who's saying, yes, as a historian, these are the books that are generally accepted by the rabbinic tradition. There is some question about these books, Esther, Song of Solomon, and Ecclesiastes. So to be fair, some people have said, especially Esther and Song of Songs or Song of Solomon, there's some question that might be going around 
that people have discovered in writings. There's some places that they didn't find these books included in the list. Remember, the scrolls were carried around. So to find out what scrolls are in and which ones aren't, since they're not in a book, they would have a list. Like, these are the three divisions, and these are the books that we believe are in. But they're in scrolls. They might actually be contained in something. That's why the order didn't matter so much, because they were just kind of put there. Here's the scrolls of the law. Maybe they didn't even keep them in the three different distinctions. They just had the scrolls. Not every community had every scroll or had access to it. But in some communities, they found that Esther and Song of Psalms wasn't included. And people think that maybe there was some question about them, specifically because none of those two books don't actually specifically mention God. So maybe that was a question. And maybe a question about Ecclesiastes. But remember, this is only at the time that Christ is conducting his ministry, that there may be some question. Later on, people believe there's no question. The Hebrew scriptures adopt those, even independent of the church. There's also this issue of rabbinical discussions at Jamnia. This is after the ministry of Christ. This is somewhere beginning after the destruction of the temple. A group of rabbis gathered. This is not the equivalent of a church council, but it took on some weight. The rabbis began to determine what do we do, by the way, about the apocryphal books? Which ones are in the canon and which ones are not? They're having this discussion because now the temple has been destroyed and this is going to carry out through the synagogue system that now is probably going to begin. So they spend many years I think it was in Tiberias at the edge of the Sea of Galilee, debating among themselves and having these discussions and recording them. And their recordings show that what we have is the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, they accept as canonical, and the Apocrypha they find profitable for reading but should not be accepted as part of the canon. So that's independent of the church. There's outside confirmation that even the Hebrew scholars at the time believed that that was the right list. Okay, that does come after Jesus, but remember that there's still some of the epistles being written around this time and maybe even the Gospels themselves if you look at some of the late-dating ideas about some of the Gospels. So they might have been aware of this as well in citing favorably to the Old Testament. This takes us a big step forward. When people talk about the Dead Sea Scrolls, we talk about them like, well, what are they specifically? I mean, what are the Dead Sea Scrolls? There's this community of Essenes at Qumran. And they're in the desert around the Dead Sea area. And they had kept a lot of these scriptures. And they lived kind of away from everybody. They lived kind of an ascetic life. They kept a lot of the scriptures in caves. Those caves kind of fell into disrepair. People moved away. People forgot about them. And it wasn't until the 1940s that an accidental discovery, they found some scrolls in these caves, and then pretty soon they started excavating many caves. In fact, they went into other valleys around Qumran as well, and they found just a wealth of scrolls. Fragments, as you'll see if we do the Dead Sea Scroll exhibit, like many of them are fragments. We'll talk about the importance of those fragments, but a couple of them were fairly intact scrolls. So we have all these kinds of external opinions that By the time that Jesus is conducting his ministry, it's a very good chance, we believe an excellent chance, that he already knew the contents of what he was referring to when he said the law, the prophets, including what he said, the Psalms. Yes? I wanted to know that Qumran, like 
they found other books like the Book of Jubilees. Like there's 14 copies of that, at least the fragments that they found, which is a lot more than some of the the books that are in the Hebrew Bible. We would think now, and so according to that community, that was a more prominent um, book that they read, which is interesting. So to say that they only had the canonical books would be totally wrong. If I made that impression, I didn't mean to. They had other things, including non-religious texts. But if you're saying that they had a lot of those apocryphal works, that is true. Actually, Qumran helps us more with understanding how well things were transmitted than really what was part of the canon or not. Although they did find some evidence in other caves that seemed to indicate that it was kind of established. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't bank on Qumran taking that home. I would put some stock in the Septuagint. I mentioned before it's a Greek translation of the Old Testament. But the important thing about it is, look at the date that it was translated. Now, it was translated over a long period of time. They first started with the Torah, and then they moved into some of the prophets and some of the writings. So this was taking place in Alexandria, in Egypt, where a large number of Hebrews had moved, but were speaking Greek. And the Hebrew scriptures were not really usable. They needed something in the language that they commonly spoke. So a translation was begun over time, which came to be the Septuagint. First, the word Septuagint comes from the idea that there are 70. You see it, it's often denotated by the LXX, the Roman numerals for 70. The tradition behind it, which not a lot of us scholars really agree with, but the tradition behind it is that 70 or 72 elders actually were separated into different rooms. And they were all translating like the whole time, and they ended up with exactly the same translation. That probably isn't true, most scholars believe. I mean, look at the, the dates from 250 to 150 before the Common Era was a pretty long period of time. It was a gradual work. But the important thing for us in understanding what was the Old Testament at the time of Jesus was the Septuagint pretty much had a complete list of the Old Testament canonical books before Jesus was there at least by 150 years before, giving us another clue externally that the canon was pretty much solidified. Now, some of these books do contain the Apocrypha. In many cases, they were separately noted or there was a division of some kind that would show this is different. Remember, these are in scroll format, so there usually has to be a list to show, like these are the scrolls, and here's the divisions we have, or here's how we've organized them, okay? But we still have a good idea from the Septuagint, what was in, what was out, well before, and there seems to be wide belief on this one. Questions? Is the Hebrew Bible now the same as the, I guess, the Protestant Old Testament? It is, with the exception of the order, and there's a couple of passages that are a little different. But to go along that line, one of the questions that wasn't directly asked, but I went down that line to find out, was what do Hebrew scholars today think of the Apocrypha? And most of them will repeat the same thing, that it may be profitable in some way for reading and teaching, but it is not part of the authorized scriptures or the authoritative scriptures or the canonical books. That's the current view, but that's been the view for a long time. And if you see the fork that happens, the Septuagint for a while is kind of like common, especially since Greek is the language around the first century. But as the church adopts it, most of the Hebrew scholars tend to distance themselves from it. Some of the translations in Greek were kind of made to favor the church a little bit. 
especially some of the Old Testament prophetic words. But if you look at it today, it's not very much different. It is in different order. Its order matches much more of the three divisions. The Septuagint actually, for the first time, creates this distinction, the law, history, poetry, and wisdom, major prophets, minor prophets, and that's what we adopted. If you look in your Bible, that's the order that we break it down into. We follow the Septuagint's order. Yeah. Um, this might be inconsequential, but we're focusing on um, assuming the Hebrew Bible's there already, then we just accept that, or like the people making the canon accepted that. Do we have any idea of who decided the Hebrew Bible of constructing that to begin with? Because I feel like it's already started, like just working backwards from we are saying, well, we know that this was ex- accepted. So then we go, like, do you know at all anything of how that was decided or who or what? or? Yes, but that would be a huge discussion, right? But you see that the church, I don't want to say they took a shortcut, but it was more convenient to say, we know that Jesus knew what it was, so we don't have to worry about that. The early church felt that his citation was enough to have established it. So if we knew what that included in the list, and he said the list was good, we don't need to worry about how it got there. I'm making it too simple, but that's kind of how you can break it down. If you look at what the early church fathers talked about and debated and discussed, of course it wasn't that simple. But the net result comes out very close to that. I said the Septuagint contained other books, the apocryphal books. Here's what they are, just so that you know. There is first Esdras, which, by the way, is confusing because... Esdras by itself could be Ezra and Nehemiah, which are canonical, but in the Septuagint, Esdras is something else. There's Judith, Tobit, an expanded part of Esther. There's the Book of Wisdom. There's the Book of Ecclesiasticus, which is not to be uh, confused with Ecclesiastes. That's the wisdom of Sirach, another name for it. There's an expanded part of Daniel. There's also an intro to Daniel, which is not included. And then there's the book of Maccabees. Depending on which version you're looking at, there's 1st and 2nd Maccabees from where we get Hanukkah as a tradition. But there's also a 3rd and 4th Maccabees, which basically spend most of the time talking about the, the, the Judean uprising under Judas Maccabeus. I know some of you have actually got Bibles that have those books in there. For a long time, many Bibles actually contain them, and they put them in a separate section, or they actually interwove them. But even if you put them in chronological order, they're going to come at the end. Why? Because most of them were written in the 3rd, 2nd, maybe 4th century before the Common Era. All right? They kind of had a different flavor entirely, especially the Maccabees. They're kind of a historical book of that intertestamentary time and what was going on in that period, maybe 170 or so BCE. All right? So if the first step was, did we know the canon? The second step is, did Jesus and the apostles view it as authoritative? I've already said, Jesus repeatedly cited to the Old Testament. I mean, we read last week from Matthew 5 where he says, like, do not think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. There's a way of kind of describing the Hebrew scriptures. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Hey, if Jesus is who he says he is and he doesn't really believe in the authority of the Old Testament, he could just start over. Why not tell him, by the way, the new covenant that I make with you is throw the old one out, let's start over. Let's just have the covenant of grace, and that's it. It's over. But he doesn't do that. He goes out of his way not to do that. Jesus announces his ministry in Luke by picking up the scroll of Isaiah and reading from it. Many of the epistle writers, including Paul, repeatedly cite to the Old Testament for authority. 
Last week we looked at 2 Timothy, that part that's talking about all Scripture, and some of you critiqued it and said, well, he can't really mean the New Testament or his own letter. Yes, but most likely he's referring to the entirety of the Hebrew Scriptures when he writes that. So there is a sweeping statement there. In 2 Peter, we'll read this verse a little bit more carefully when we get to inerrancy and inspiration and those issues. But in 2 Peter 1, starting at verse 19, he says, We have the word of the prophets made more certain. You will do well to pay attention to it, as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. We will talk about that concept as it deals with inspiration. So, both Jesus and the apostles cited to the authority of Scripture. And you have to be careful there, because Paul also used arguments that were outside of Scripture. He cited to Greek philosophy. That doesn't mean that Greek philosophy suddenly becomes part of the canon. He also cites, somebody wrote a question like, didn't he cite to the book of Enoch? Didn't somebody cite to the book of Enoch? In Jude, thank you, it's not Paul, it's in Jude. Yes. And you say, well, where's the book of Enoch? We'll have to deal with where that book might or might not be. But that doesn't mean that it's part of the canon just because somebody cited to it. The more authoritative part, I would argue, would be Jesus seemed to sweep them all in. And I believe he had the chance to say, we're starting a new deal. But he expressly avoids that and says, no, not one stroke of the law disappears. So if you believe he knew what it was, that's kind of how we say, ergo, then the Old Testament is in. Yeah? It just seems sort of backwards in this, because like, we're using the New Testament to prove the Old Testament. Or, I mean, like, even things that Jesus said, but the only things we have those are things in the New Testament that were determined canon or whatever else. There's probably other things, that we have the other Gospels of Jesus saying all sorts of things, so... I don't think the word backwards is right. It's not backwards. You have to do it in that order because one came before the other historically. The question is whether it's reliable what's recorded about Jesus saying it. You know, if that's not reliable, then we have two problems, not one, because they build on one another. I wouldn't even call it like circular logic. It's like one comes before the other. Jesus' words are recorded accurately. This is in. But if you have problems or we discover problems of how Jesus' words were transmitted, then we have two problems, not one. Well, even more is just, if we look at the New Testament as a historical document, it's showing the faith practice of those people. Like, there's, I mean, you aren't going to find scholars who are saying, yeah, the disciples didn't care about the Old Testament. Like, what we call the Old Testament is what they were studying and learning under, and, and that's pretty well considered. So it's actually not strange to go to the New Testament to say, yeah, actually, we do seem to know that, that they're using what we call the Old Testament. That, that's their faith practice. Especially for someone like Paul. I mean, Paul did not plan to become a Christian. Basically, his credentials he repeatedly cites in defending a lot of things, including his apostleship. But he wants to make it clear that he was the one who was really going to study these things all the way and knew them backwards and forwards. So it would be strange for him if he really rejected them, not to come out and say. I mean, there's enough things that Paul starts to distance himself from, like circumcision and other practices, like, no, this is not required anymore, but he does not in this area. He had the chance. 
We have most of, I mean, he, we have more from him than almost anybody else. He certainly had the chance to say, by the way, same as Jesus, we're starting over, we're doing something new. He goes the opposite way. He actually appeals to it repeatedly as authority to show its fulfillment in Christ. Yeah. Well, I was going to say that, to Phil's point, I think it's true it doesn't necessarily prove it, but I think just when there's inner consistency, it gives it more validity. Okay. It's not a view that's like most people follow, but I think it's interesting that a lot of people who kind of analyze that they look at, especially like the Roman society in which like the Gospels um, came out of, and they see that there's a lot of kind of reverence for ancient religions and new things where people were really skeptical of those, in which case some people make the argument, well, they're appealing to a more Jewish heritage and roots partially to legitimize their own religion now because Romans aren't going to like this new religion that comes up, but they do kind of have this fascination with the old, so when you link it uh, to the old, then you're probably going to get less persecuted or something. Let me push forward a little bit. How did it get copied? You guys have probably heard the common phrase, well, there's like a lot of errors in there. We don't know what happened. Let's just talk briefly about that. For a long time, the Hebrew text that we had access to was the Masoretic text, which is basically a medieval text. From about 500 to 900, there was a group that spent time copying very carefully and methodically the Old Testament scriptures. The Masoretic text is the basis of the Hebrew Bible right now, and we use it all the time. We call it the prototype for the Old Testament canon. Even though we still use the Septuagint, we use other things, we go back, we're still always checking against this text because their methodology was probably the most accurate known. But no matter how accurate it is, notice that it picks up around 500. So we're in the medieval time. And for a long time, that was the earliest we had. So people were asking, well, if some of these texts were written much, much earlier, how do we know they were copied down to get to these Masoretic people accurately? That's where the Dead Sea Scrolls come in. Look, we jump almost 750 years in terms of how much earlier we have fragments. Now, they're fragments. Some are more complete scrolls, some are just fragments, but the beauty is we can now find out a little bit better. Some people argue that the Old Testament was written down much, much later. Jeremy may argue that tonight. If that's true, we're pretty close with some of these scrolls, fragments that we discovered. We could look back and say, look, here's a fragment. Let's compare a fragment and see how it was translated 700 years later. Was there any changes? I mean, we don't have the whole scroll, but let's just look at the section. And if we believe the section was copied accurately, that makes us feel better. Let's look at another fragment. Let's look at another fragment. And what we discovered was, for the most part, this text was preserved pretty well by the time it was copied throughout the Middle Ages. We're spanning hundreds of years here, and we're able to look and say, no difference. Now, I say no difference, I mean no difference in substance. Because in a moment, you're going to see that there were some copying mistakes and some other things. But we can even start to ascertain those. So that's the importance of the Dead Sea Scrolls, is we can actually test. See, the New Testament documents, it's easier. Because we have copies already being made fairly accurately, and they're being cited all over the place within just a couple hundred years of their creation. 
as I said last week, we don't have a single original autograph, meaning we don't have a single original version of anybody's book that they wrote or anybody's scroll that they actually wrote. We've always been working with copies. But we've also believed that people taking Scripture very, very seriously were doing their best to copy as accurately as possible. The Masoretic text was a great example because you could look from 500, 600, 700, 800 and see these people were meticulous. But until we got to the Dead Sea Scrolls, we didn't know if that would carry backwards. And when we found them, we thought, wow, this is pretty good. By the way, Qumran is one of the places, it's like the place where they hit the jackpot for the Dead Sea Scrolls. Um, but there's also another valley called Morabbat, which is near there, also in the Dead Sea area. And that also is a place where they found a whole other group of caves that also had scriptures. There's other fragments, the Nash Papyrus, the Cairo Geniza. The Samaritans also had their own version of the Pentateuch. They changed it in some places intentionally because of their theological difference with the Jews. But we could also go back to that. That was also found in different places. So what we're doing is we're taking these pieces and putting them together. You saw that we have other languages. The Septuagint, I've already mentioned. But it was also translated, the Hebrew scriptures were translated into Aramaic, what we call the Targums in Aramaic. Those translations tend to be a little bit more interpretive. They weren't like literal word-for-word translations. But at least we could go back and check what other people were writing in other languages. The Syriac version was also one that was translated. It's difficult to determine when exactly, but we can use it and compare. What we're doing here is we're taking all the evidence and putting it together. There was also the Latin version. Eventually, by the way, the Latin version becomes the version for a long, long time. It was written by Jerome. It's called the Vulgate. So if you ever heard the word the Vulgate, it comes from meaning like the common language, like vulgar. We get the same root. Latin was the, was the, was the language of Rome as its empire was spreading. And even as it was going away, people learned that language. What was interesting was when Jerome was translating the Latin version, the church told him to just basically take the Septuagint and just turn it into Latin. He's like, you know what? I don't want to do that. I want to go back and consult the Hebrew scriptures themselves and see if I can translate more accurately. And then most of the church was like, forget accuracy. Just make sure it agrees theologically with what we're saying. Jerome pushed back and actually went to the Hebrew scriptures and for the most part tried to be as, as true to them as he could. And for a while, that meant that his version, nobody really wanted it. But later on, it kind of took on steam and became the version and eventually became like the basis of the Catholic Bible. Plus, we have quotes from the early church fathers. We also have quotes galore from the rabbinic tradition and all the interpretations they made they would quote at length different pieces of the scriptures. So we could go back when we find those places and reconstruct. So what we're trying to do here, this whole exercise is saying, how do we know that the book that's in your Bible in any way resembles the original since we don't have an original? And we could look at all these things, and I would say that probably the greatest one that should give us confidence is discovering the Dead Sea Scrolls. Last week I said this, you know, we're always so arrogant thinking we've already discovered it all. We're like it. We're the generation it, right? I don't know that in 100 years they're not going to find older stuff. Who knows what they found? I mean, up until 1940-something, we thought that the oldest thing we had was medieval. And that was it because we thought, hey, as time goes on, the chances of discovering something older get slimmer and slimmer. We hit the jackpot. I don't know that sitting somewhere in some dry cave somewhere isn't another jackpot waiting to be discovered. So I don't think it's done. We thought it was done before and it wasn't. Finally, 
let me just show you the transmission methodology. We try to figure out which manuscripts are which dates. That's how we start. We collect all that we can. We figure out what's the date of these manuscripts. Some of them, just what they're found next to, some of them actually contain dates. Some of them, radiocarbon dating, whatever they can do. Some of them are found next to business documents, for example. You know, other documents that are non-religious. Not like all ancient people did nothing but write religious documents. They actually had regular documents too, just like us. We are always refining our understanding of the original language to try to get more accurate in understanding what they were doing. And we're trying to figure out where the errors in copying might have occurred. Here are some unintentional errors that might occur. As you saw when I kind of zoomed in on that codex, same thing happens on a scroll. The Hebrew language when it was written, they used just the consonants. Sometimes they use similar consonants or they transpose them. We get a different word. Usually it's obvious. Sometimes they incorrectly divided the word because they didn't use space, so they kind of split it differently. Again, it's pretty obvious when you see 10 different versions and you think, I think this one got it wrong. I can see where the mistake was. Sometimes there was confusion over the sounds because somebody would sometimes, in some traditions, orally read the scroll as others copied it. There might be an omission of a, a letter, a word, or a phrase. I mean, if I asked you to copy something down, you might omit a word or forget one or need to insert it later. There might be an accidental repetition because your eye moved when you were doing it, or you just might use incorrect vowels later when they started inserting vowels into the text to make it easier they might insert the wrong ones. Some of these people were not translating in their original tongue. And, of course, there are a couple intentional errors. There's places where we could see that somebody was trying to harmonize two different areas and they didn't like the way it turned out, so they would kind of add something. You might have seen some places where there almost seems to be like a parenthetical insertion, like an explanation. That's what an improvement is. Like somebody's trying to improve the text or maybe kind of dance around a little bit. Maybe an objectionable text is just deleted or dropped. For example, when we were finishing up our series on Matthew, do you remember that I said, like, talking about something that was deleted? Do you remember when I said that most of the earliest manuscripts list that Barabbas's first name was Jesus? And, like, most, I could see there are some people who are like, I don't like that, you know? I don't like that his name was Jesus, too. Jesus was a common name. The earliest manuscripts show that his name was Jesus Barabbas. But over time, people thought, oh, I can't, I can't bear that, you know? So they just deleted the word Jesus and just kept his name as Barabbas, even though we've discovered that it's actually in an earlier manuscript, and in several, not just one. Use of synonyms, conflation, that's where you just look and there's like variances and you don't know what to do, so you just put them both in there. All right? Even our books right now, if you read the Bible, sometimes drop a footnote and say, other versions say. So then this is kind of the guiding principle for how we know what we do. We start with the Masoretic text. That's kind of the starting place, both for the Hebrew Bible, by the way, and for our Old Testament. We kind of think it's still the best and most accurate thing around, and the Dead Sea Scrolls still confirm that, but they're not complete enough. Whereas the Masoretic text seem to be the most complete thing we can find, and they've been confirmed very accurate. We use the Septuagint kind of as a backstop. Those other texts I mentioned, maybe to a lesser degree, we look for the reading that best explains the origin of other variants. We try to think, like, where would those other variants have come from? Is there an explanation as to why they would have been dropped in? Is it unintentional? Is it intentional? Can we find a reason that this might be here? Most of the time, the shorter reading is preferable on the theory that people might add things 
But unless there's a clear mistake, they usually don't just drop things out. Now, like I said, the Jesus Barabbas example is one where it did. So some Bibles are starting to put it back in. That's why the shorter reading is preferable. The more difficult the reading, the more likely it's to be the original. Just a rule doesn't mean they have to hold it rigidly. That's just a preference in the way that they tend to try to look at what might be the best way to understand the criticism of these texts. Readings that aren't harmonized with other texts are preferable. Again, because different people wrote them. And finally, when all else fails, the textual critic must resort to conjectural emendation. A fancy scholarly word for guess. Educated guess. But that word is actually in the methodology. Conjectural emendation. Only an egghead could make up a word like that. <laughs> to make an educated guess sound somehow more plausible than just saying, I don't know, but this is the best that I can do. That's a lot of info. It answers like seven of your questions already that you've asked about the Old Testament. Questions about that info? Okay, here's what I'd like to do. Let's stand up and take like two minutes just to stretch, grab a little bit more food, whatever, and then Jeremy and I are going to start talking a little bit about one more aspect before we close it up tonight.